This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 27, The Punic Wars, Part 1. In this episode, we explained that the early Roman Republic was characterised by a class conflict where the common citizens, otherwise known as the plebeians, were at odds with the Roman aristocracy, officially referred to as the patricians. The patricians were the only members of Roman society who could ascend to the most important political roles in the society. And the plebeians were treated as low-class citizens with very limited rights. The problem for the patricians was that they relied heavily on the plebeians for their manpower and the plebeians would use this as leverage whenever they felt that they were being unfairly represented. As such, the Roman Republic would need to continually reform and it may be that this willingness to reform enabled the Romans to grow as a nation-state and entice more and more cities to willingly be amalgamated into this successful society. Not everybody in the Roman Republic was wealthy, but becoming Roman meant that your land was protected against local enemies, and all too often you would find that your local enemies would be subjugated by the Roman Republic shortly afterwards anyway. Sometimes this would be done by cooperation, and other times it was done by force. By the end of the 270s BCE, the Roman Republic had managed to demonstrate to the Etruscans in the north, where Roman lands now were, and through conquest of the city-states of Magna Graecia, the Roman Republic occupied the entire Italian peninsula to the south of the lands of the Etruscans. In order to achieve that, the Romans would need to achieve the submission of the city of Tarentum, which was allied to the Balkan state of Epirus. The Epirates, under their notable king Pyrrhus, would challenge the Romans who were getting involved in the political affairs of Magna Graecia. While the Epirates were on the Italian peninsula, they were approached by the Syracusans of Sicily, who had an issue of their own. During the Sicilian Wars, 
the Syracusan king Agathocles hired some companion mercenaries to assist the Syracusans against the Carthaginians in their wars over the island of Sicily. After King Agathocles died, some of the companion mercenaries decided that Sicilian life was for them, and they took control of the very strategically important city of Messana, which overlooked the Strait of Messina, which separated Sicily from the Italian mainland and was an incredibly important narrow sea pass. These mercenaries would become the Mamertines, and with their actions they would now become enemies of the Syracusans. The Syracusans would actually reach out to King Pyrrhus of Epirus themselves, and Pyrrhus saw an opportunity to get involved in Sicilian politics, much to the chagrin of the Carthaginians. King Pyrrhus of Epirus was ultimately unsuccessful in his exploits in Sicily and Italy, even though his efforts were impressive, and certainly both the Carthaginians and the Romans were hugely concerned about it. Pyrrhus ran short on resources and had to leave the scene. In Sicily, the Carthaginians had come back to the west of the island, and the Syracusans were still in the east. The Mamertines were now in control of Messana, and the Syracusans were still very uncomfortable about it. King Hiero II of Syracuse would become engaged in military conflict with the Mamertines, and so the Mamertines would turn to the Syracusans' traditional enemy, the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians responded to this request and sent a garrison to Messana, much to the concern of the Syracusans. However, it appears that the Mamertines had also approached the Romans, and the Romans deliberated over this opportunity. The Romans had had a respectful relationship with the Carthaginians, but now the strength of the Romans and the Carthaginians may have caused some paranoia between the two mighty entities, and this could have influenced some of the decision-making during this period. The Romans ended up deciding that they actually did want to become involved in Sicilian affairs, and they decided to send their own military garrison to Messana. Before the Romans arrived in Messana, the Carthaginians left. So this also appears to have very little to do with protecting Messana from the Syracusans, and more to do with having control over a major strategical Mediterranean waterway. The Carthaginians were upset that the Roman garrison had been favoured by the Mamertines and did something almost unthinkable. They struck up an alliance with the Syracusans, their traditional enemy for so many years. The Carthaginians and the Syracusans prevented the Roman fleet from landing at Messana, so the Romans had to come back stronger and they expelled the Carthaginians and the Syracusans from holding Messana under siege. Before the Romans moved on to Syracuse, where they would attack the Syracusans, demanding their surrender and leaving the Carthaginians 
all on their own. The First Punic War The biggest challenge for the Romans when it came to a conflict on Sicily was matching the Carthaginian naval capabilities. Seafaring was in the Carthaginian blood and as a people who descended from the greatest sea traders of their age, the Phoenicians. The Romans had only ever had to worry about land forces and land battles. The Romans may have had to rely on the Etruscans for naval knowledge, as they were the ones with the expertise rather than the Romans. In fact, it's quite strange that despite the mighty dominance that the Romans would go on to achieve, that there are very little conversations about the Roman navy in history. However, there can be no doubt that the Romans would have needed good naval capabilities to be able to come the mighty empire that they became. And this is where we can start to discuss it. The Roman navy was quite basic before the Punic Wars, with references to it being commissioned to defend the coast from pirates, and an unimpressive performance in the conflict with Tarento, which we spoke about in the last episode. With the Romans making the big decision to venture over to Sicily, they would have absolutely no option but to invest heavily into their naval fleet, and their recent land acquisitions on the Italian peninsula may have helped to fund this project. The 2nd century BCE Greek historian called Polybius tells us much of the expansion of Rome and he suggests that the Romans were able to build a fleet based on a Carthaginian quinquireme that the Romans had managed to lay their hands on. They would use this ship as a blueprint for a hundred of their own. The Carthaginian quinquireme was a type of galley and not completely unlike the triremes that were being used by other societies and which featured very heavily in the Persian invasions of Greece some 200 years earlier, for example. The Romans had had early successes against the Carthaginians on the island of Sicily, such as at the Battle of Agrigentum, and with the Roman land army's success rate, this shouldn't be too surprising. The first real test of the Roman navy came in 260 BCE at the Battle of Mele, which took place just off the north coast of Sicily. The Romans, if nothing else, were very ambitious and naively innovative when finalising their boat designs. The Corvus was a remarkable piece of naval engineering that in theory was a revelation. If a Roman galley wound up alongside a Carthaginian galley, then the Corvus would come into play. Suddenly, a great wooden bridge would be released from the Roman galley with a huge spike on the end that would pierce the wooden frame and deck of the Carthaginian galley, entrapping it to the Roman galley. Then, the Roman crew would be able to run across the bridge and slaughter the Carthaginian crew and eliminate the ship from the battle. This spiked bridge was the Corvus, and it was seemingly a success during this battle. However, the tenure of the Corvus as a definite fixture of Roman galleys 
was quite short-lived, suggesting that it caused its share of hindrance to the Roman galleys also, and it fell out of favour within the design plans. So the Romans would score a surprising victory against the Carthaginians at the Battle of Mele, and this was a huge blow to Carthage, having been dominant over the western Mediterranean for so long. And they were now being tested to their absolute limit by this new and modern force that was proving itself to be equal to, if not superior to them, at least in the opening exchanges of the First Punic War, and if that was anything to go by. During the previous century, Agathocles, the tyrant of Syracuse, had ventured across the Mediterranean to the North African coast to attack the city of Carthage itself. He was unsuccessful. Around 35 years later, King Pyrrhus of Epirus was drawing up similar plans while battling the Carthaginians in Sicily. However, due to the native Sicilians turning against Pyrrhus, he would not be able to go through with an invasion of the North African coast and the city of Carthage. The Romans had now reached a point where it may be prudent to strike the Carthaginians at their core and make the journey over to North Africa themselves. And so they did. The Romans landed on the African coast at Aspis, which is on the Cape Bon Peninsula in the modern day country of Tunisia. There would follow a great journey of around 60 miles across the peninsula and around the coast of the Gulf of Tunis, going through the city of Tunis to reach the capital city of Carthage. The Carthaginians were hugely concerned for their very survival and sued for peace. But the Roman offer was so unreasonable that the Carthaginians could not accept. The result was the Battle of the Bagradus River in 255 BCE, probably more famously known as the Battle of Tunis. The Roman consul Marcus Attilius Regulus led an army of around 15,000 against a similar sized army commanded by Xanthippus. The Carthaginian army was quite diverse with comparatively high numbers of cavalry and around a hundred war elephants. Even Xanthippus himself was not a Carthaginian. He was a Spartan who was commissioned by the Carthaginians to aid them in their surprising struggle against the Romans who had achieved naval superiority and an upper hand in this first Punic War. Xanthippus is reported to have been very critical of the Carthaginian tactics and amazingly he seemed to prove that he was right when he scored a famous victory here against the Romans. In fact, the Roman army was pretty much wiped out by Xanthippus. The Roman consul Regulus was taken as a prisoner of war and scant few Romans abandoned Africa. At last, some fortune and victory for Carthage. The aftermath of this rout was that the few Romans who survived needed to be rescued by naval vessels in order to escape Africa. So the Romans sent almost 400 warships obliging the Carthaginian fleet to engage. The Carthaginian fleet 
was considerably smaller than the Roman fleet and they suffered a crushing defeat at the hands of the Romans who captured over half of the Carthaginian boats. However, in this seesaw-style game of fortunes, when the Roman fleet headed back to Sicilian lands, a major storm destroyed most of the Roman fleet, resulting in the death of many thousands. Interestingly though, many have pointed to the design of the Roman ships as being flawed, and although they were possibly built from a Carthaginian template, it appears that it may have been the Corvus, the spiked boarding bridge, that was destabilising the Roman galleys and making them susceptible to problems in storms. The Roman navy fast developed a reputation for being crippled by storms, and it is interesting to note that the Corvus was no longer being used soon after this period. The biggest issue with the First Punic War was not only the intensity of the fighting, but of the loss of the resources to both sides. Both the Romans and the Carthaginians had come into conflicts throughout their histories, so they were quite used to warfare, but being the two mightiest entities of the Western Mediterranean, they had both been able to build up a strong national economy and sphere of influence, so it should come as no surprise when looking back that this war was absolutely huge. It is possible that both sides felt a little exhausted by the last 10 years of war, but neither side was prepared to give up on Sicily. The Romans attempted to capture more Carthaginian strongholds on the island, and the Carthaginians had no choice but to send reinforcements to the island. Once again, the Romans had the momentum but would overreach themselves when they attempted a surprise attack on the Carthaginian fleet at the west tip of the island. The Carthaginians launched a counter-attack which devastated the Roman fleet at what would become the Battle of Drepana. The naval losses for the Romans by battle or the nature of the sea and the weather itself meant that the Roman naval offensive was defeated for now, and the Carthaginians, sadly for them, were not strong enough to capitalise. Both sides had crippled each other, and there was an uneasy break in major conflict for a number of years. Since before the disastrous Roman surprise attack at Drepana, the Romans had been besieging the Carthaginian city of Lilibium, and while the Roman defeat at Drepana didn't break the siege, it certainly meant that the Romans could not force the issue, and the siege continued for a number of years. So it became a race against time for both the Romans and the Carthaginians, who both had to initially stabilise their economies before rebuilding their military. They both knew that the other wanted to take control of Sicily, and they both knew that any peace negotiations were likely to fall over. Such was the importance of the imminent confrontation that both parties attempted to borrow money to aid their efforts. It would take years before any action took place. Eventually, in 242 BCE, the Romans sent a new concession of warships to Lilibium to bolster the siege. The Roman warships attacked 
the Carthaginian supply ships and a naval battle took place around the Egadean Islands just off the west coast of Sicily. This battle became the Battle of the Egates and this time the element of surprise favoured the Romans. With the Carthaginian fleet laden with supplies they were ill-equipped for the battle and outnumbered by their opponents. The result was a huge victory for the Romans. The Carthaginians put up a brave fight and a decent number of the Roman quinquirine galleys were damaged. But the Carthaginians would have lost more ships and any associated supplies. And this was a disaster for an already economically suffering nation. The commander of the Carthaginian army was Hamilcar Barca. Hamilcar was a brave commander and he was very reluctant to allow the Carthaginian Senate to agree peace terms with the Romans that he believed would be tantamount to surrender. So Hamilcar was removed from the negotiation and responsibility was handed to Gisco, a Carthaginian general. He would negotiate with Gaius Lutatius Catullus, the Roman statesman, and the terms of the agreement were called the Treaty of Lutatius in respect of his name. The Romans would demand the release of all Roman prisoners of war and sadly this would not include Regulus who, if you remember, was captured in North Africa due to the fact that he had died some years before while imprisoned. The Romans also demanded repatriations from the Carthaginians which would have hurt an already aching economy. Also, the Carthaginians were to abandon all Sicilian possessions. Rome was now in control of the island of Sicily, with just the land under the control of Syracuse excluded. Further to this, the Romans would pitilessly occupy both the islands of Sardinia and Corsica, which had previously been occupied by the Carthaginians. It appears that this was not discussed as part of the Treaty of Lutatius, although when the Romans took control of the islands, they would claim that it was. Knowing full well that the Carthaginians were not in any kind of position to challenge them on this issue. The Carthaginians would have come out of the First Punic War with some real bitterness towards the Romans after 23 years of crippling battle. The biggest issue that Carthage had was that they didn't have any means by which to challenge the Romans. Hellenistic nations had enough to worry about without getting involved in what could be regarded as a Roman blatant disregard of the treaty. The danger was that if the Carthaginians were to roll over and allow the Romans just to steal territory from under their noses, where would it end? The Aftermath The one man who had always stood firmly against the Romans, showing absolutely no will to bow down to them, was Hamilcar Barca. Hamilcar realised that the only way that Carthage could challenge Rome with any degree of significance was if Carthage started to rebuild its economy. 
Carthage may not have had any opportunity to meaningfully challenge the Romans on Corsica and Sardinia, but it did have influence over territories in the south of the modern-day country of Spain, on what is called the Iberian Peninsula. The Iberian Peninsula is to the west of the Italian Peninsula at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea. The Romans seemed very content with their work and also decided to consolidate and pursue other opportunities. The Romans had concentrated much of their resources on the south of the Italian peninsula and the Carthaginians for a considerable amount of time and there were still Etruscans and Celts to the north of Roman territory and they were also interested in consolidating and expanding on their own positions. Celts As we already know, Celtic tribes and societies were living in and around Central Europe and they were diversifying mainly due to the large range of their migrations. So for example we believe that the Gallic branch of Celtic societies emanated from the lands of modern France and migrated eastwards across the continent. However, wherever these Celtic societies migrated to, they would inevitably mix with the existing cultures which would further diversify the ethnicities of the continent. Back in episode 9, we spoke of how ethnic Greeks travelled to the Ligurian Sea and established the colony of Massalia, which is where we can find the modern French city of Marseille. When the Greeks landed here, they would have encountered Ligurian natives on the land, and the Ligurians would have also been touched by Celtic cultures, and this was before the emergence of the Gallic Celtic culture, which we believe developed somewhat independently. Certainly, the Celto-Ligurian peoples would have come into contact with the neighbouring Etruscans to their south. From the north, the Gauls would have migrated into the lands of the Celto-Ligurians, so the resulting Insubri culture was a rich fusion of Gallic and Ligurian cultures coming into the 3rd century BCE. Another Gallic culture who we believe settled to the east of the Insubri were the Boi, who may have established their position in relation to the Gallic sacking of Rome, which by now was around 150 years ago. So beyond the land of the Etruscans, to the north of the Roman Republic, we find these Gallic societies living in the European lands directly north of the Italian peninsula. Celtic peoples had also migrated into the Iberian Peninsula, where Iberian cultures had previously existed. The Celts integrated with the Iberians and this developed into a distinct Celt-Iberian culture. And it would be this culture that the Carthaginian commander Hamilcar Barca would have encountered when he went to the Iberian Peninsula in the wake of the First Punic War in order to explore the imperial opportunities available to the Carthaginian Empire. In the meantime, the Romans were exploring expansion and this would lead them to look at the Celtic settlements to their north. 
The Romans had done enough over the decades to earn the support of many of their neighbours such as the Sabines and the Umbrians, but also more crucially, many Etruscans as well, who would have now had to respect the might of the Romans, where in centuries gone by, they maybe wouldn't have had to have been so subservient. This culminated in a large battle called the Battle of Telamon against the Chisalpine Gauls, who were the Gauls occupying the lands of the far north of the Italian peninsula. The Gauls felt that the Romans were trying to muscle in on the Celtic territories despite there supposedly being a peaceful agreement between the Romans and the Chisalpine Gallic societies of the Insubri and the Boii. These Chisalpine Gauls invaded Etruria in a bid to head down the west coast of the Italian peninsula to Rome and the Romans met them at Telamon with an army supported by Etruscans and other Italian peninsula natives. Despite the fact that the Celts successfully beheaded one of the Roman consuls during the battle, it was in fact the Romans who defeated the Celts with their larger numbers and superior tactics and this enabled the Romans to achieve complete dominance of the Italian peninsula from top to bottom as well as having control of all three of the large islands of Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica. So the Carthaginians had to look elsewhere for their opportunities and were successful in colonising the Celt-Iberian-occupied Mediterranean coastal areas of the Iberian Peninsula. Rome was very watchful over the Carthaginian activity under Hamilcar Barker in Iberia, but didn't interfere as Hamilcar would justify what he was doing by claiming that he was gathering the war repatriations demanded by the Romans of the Carthaginians by the Treaty of Lutatius. We are not completely sure of the exact circumstances of the death of Hamilcar Barker, but it seems likely that it was at the hands of the Celtiberians who were resisting the Carthaginians at the Battle of Heliki in 228 BCE. The Celtiberian victory over the Carthaginians and the death of their great general and commander Hamilcar Barker was a huge blow to the ambitions of Carthage while attempting to re-establish themselves following their bitter defeat during the First Punic War. However, the Carthaginians remained in Iberia and regrouped in order to resume their offensives to avenge their defeat here. By 221 BCE, command of the Carthaginian army in Iberia transferred to Hamilcar's eldest son, Hannibal Barker. Saguntum Previous to Hannibal Barker becoming the commander of the Carthaginian army in Iberia, the Romans and the Carthaginians had an agreement about how far north the Carthaginians were allowed to venture when acquiring land and possessions in order to boost their imperial position and economy. The border would be the Ebro River, which was a river which runs across the north of the Iberian Peninsula before emptying into the Mediterranean Sea. The Romans would not allow the Carthaginians to extend their territory north of the Ebro, but anything south 
was fair game and this should allow the Carthaginians to develop their economy enough to sustain their repatriation costs to the Romans. Should the Carthaginians venture north of the Ebro then they would be well on their way towards those Ligurian lands that the Romans were extending their influence into so this was not a favourable prospect for the Romans. However, the Romans throughout the 3rd century BCE clearly had very little respect for the Carthaginians and amazingly, our evidence of this comes from the pens of Roman historians. So if they were casting aspersions on their own behaviour, then there must have been some real ruthlessness about their foreign policy. Even if you can justify their interest in helping the Mamertines out in the city of Messana in Sicily, it is incredibly hard to justify the Roman theft of Sardinia from under the Carthaginians' noses, knowing full well that Carthage had no physical way of contesting it. So when the Romans interfered in the politics of the Iberian city of Saguntum, it was a big problem because the city lies almost 100 miles south of the Ebro River and despite there being an anti-Carthaginian sentiment among some of the people of Saguntum, still Carthage could not accept this blatant disregard of the agreement made. If Carthage allowed Rome to have influence over the politics of Saguntum, then once again where would it end? So the Carthaginian commander in Iberia, Hannibal Barca, decided that it was not acceptable and laid siege to the rebellious Iberian city in response to their disloyalty to their geographical overlords. Saguntum was a very prosperous coastal city and so a lot was at stake. The Romans sent ambassadors to Carthage and no agreement could be reached. The result was the beginning of the Second Punic War, and an episode in history which has immortalised the Carthaginian commander, Hannibal Barker. But we'll save that story for next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and sorry, sorry it was late. Uh, for those of you who uh, enjoy looking forward to when it comes out, I normally publish it at a particular time of day. It's actually uh, scheduled to publish at 3am UK time um, after I've recorded it. But however, normally I set aside time to record it on a Saturday evening. Uh, on this occasion, it wasn't possible. I didn't plan my weekend very well and uh, I ended up running out of time. So here I am on a Sunday morning recording the podcast episode and so it's a few hours late hopefully it was worth it in the end I, I do really enjoy this story of the Punic Wars I, I find it fascinating and uh, next week is going to be the the famous story of the crossing of the Alps and um, those those 37 elephants that are depicted so often we're going to actually get to the nitty gritty and the truth of all of that so that will be next week However, thank you for listening this week. It hopefully sets up that theatre uh, for next week. Now, if you want more of the History of the World podcast, then simply go along to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. There's plenty to look at on the website and plenty to do. So 
please I encourage you to go and visit it. And uh, if you want to support the podcast, then while at the website, all you need to do is click on the Patreon link. It takes you over to the Patreon website where you can actually sign up to make a monthly contribution to the website. We're happy with monthly contributions for as little as $1 a month. really does help. It adds up with everyone else's contributions. It really does help me to buy resources for the podcast books and and such things that really do help me to get the information as accurate as possible. The more books I've got, the better I can triangulate the information and hopefully give you a more accurate story as to what, uh, what we believe happened way back all these years ago. And um, anyone who does make a contribution towards the podcast becomes a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, and there are associated gifts that we distribute to those who make significant contributions over any amount of time so i encourage you to go and investigate that it's worth a look and um, you might be able to pick yourself up one or two little gifts that was a big week for the podcast this week it was our second birthday so we're now two years old we've managed to publish an episode every week for the last two years so Quite amazing, really. This is the 107th episode of the History of the World podcast, if you include all the unscripted episodes. So uh, we've really done rather well. We've uh, we've got through it together. We've stuck together and got through it. And uh, here's to the next year. Lots to look forward to. The entire Roman story, a lot about the Celts and the, uh, the peoples of the Eurasian steppe and uh, China, India... Uh, plenty plenty to come um, from volume three um, to uh, you know we're we're not I don't even think we're halfway through volume three yet quite amazingly but uh, two years old thank you ever so much for your support I couldn't have done it without you and I know that sounds like a cheesy cliche but I really do believe that I could not have done this without your support so I thank you so so much Best we have a look at some of your kind reviews. Let's have a look at what's coming. So we've got a a review, a five-star review from Ross J.E. from the United States of America who's put, this is really, really good. Starts with pre-human history. It's great. Uh, Thank you very much for that review. Um, A Canadian who loves history. JLH8769 from Canada has put, uh, have loved history since I was very young. Really enjoying this podcast. I'm learning a lot about new areas of history and love refreshing my understanding of my favourite era. Um, or my favourite eras, I should say. And then finally, Justin426 has put, Love it, my current favourite podcast. It's a joy to binge and it is very well made and researched. Um, thank you. Thank you ever so much, everybody who has... Um, you know, who's reviewed the podcast. If, like, as I always say to you, if you can't make any financial contribution, um, any review or five star rating, anything like that, is of great value. It's of huge value to the podcast. So please don't forget to stop reviewing. Well, that's about it for another week. We're going to sign off now. Next week, we're going to be crossing the Alps with elephants. So get yourself ready for that. Until next week, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, 
historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.